This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. In ideal terms, someone who's very active in a a relief organization, who always has time for uh, meditation, worship, personal Bible reading, a little bit of reading in, in um, theological areas that are that are uh, uh, pertain to the area of activism. That, it seems to me, would be an ideal situation. This is a podcast about two things, helping those with urgent needs in front of us today and improving the road so others can walk it safely in the future. Welcome to The Better Samaritan. We're grateful you're with us, and we're here learning how to do good better whether in everyday interactions or complex humanitarian challenges. I'm Kent Annan, co-director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College. I'm joined by my colleague, Jamie Ayton, and our producer, Laura Finch. And today we're thrilled to be talking with Mark Knoll, a leading church historian in the country. Mark has taught at Regent College, Notre Dame, Wheaton College, and written many books. Uh, In particular, we're focusing today on the influential book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. It was first published in 1995 and is being re-released this March, in March 2022. Uh, Mark, welcome. We're grateful you're with us. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. Um, we're going to be focusing in the conversation on the scandal of the evangelical mind. And you know, for anyone even just a little bit familiar, probably gets to, gets to know the idea that evangelicalism as a term is a bit slippery. We have David Bevington's quadrangle of priorities around conversion, the Bible, the cross, activism, and U.S. popular culture. Evangelicalism is more and more associated with conservative politics um, and the political wing. Um, as we start this conversation, we thought it would be really helpful to hear from you. What is your working definition of evangelical? Sure. I do think the characteristics that David Bevington has identified work very well for a conceptual understanding of what evangelical Christianity is about. So uh, personal conversion or a personal relationship with Christ, uh, a belief in the Bible as supreme authority, personal um, forgiveness by God through the cross of Christ, and, and per- personal act- activity. But um, conceptually, the clarity of the definition begins to recede when it, it comes into the public square. And as you've intimated already, the word in the United States has taken on a particular uh, political tinge because white evangelical Protestants are identified as some of the strongest backers for the, for the former President Trump and, 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 in, and several other uh, interesting social uh, dimensions. Around the world, however, uh, as seen, for example, in groups that participate in the World Evangelical Fellowship, that American political designation really is next to uh, meaningless. So I think the difficulty today in coming up with a crisp, simple definition is that in different contexts, conceptually and politically, socially, in different contexts, but then also in different regions of the world, those who are called evangelicals or seen evangelicals look quite different one from each other. And what would uh, follow up quickly on that? Could you just not not globally to unpack the whole thing, but could you give one example for for us and for listeners of 
you know, what would be different about uh, an American evangelical versus, I don't know, pick any, pick another country, you know, uh, somewhere else in the world where it would be quite different? Sure. Well, again, that's actually too hard of a question because you can say, well, here, Here's uh, Francis Collins, who is recently retired as a director of the National Institute of Health, who uh, certainly looks like an evangelical, talks like an evangelical, speaks like an evangelical, and in his own uh, personal story recounts how a reading of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity brought him to Christ, brought him to understand that uh, God should be at the center of his life. So he, he would be an, an evangelical. He's also the head of the, or, or the founder of the Biologos Foundation, that has tried, worked very hard to show how a responsible view of, of, of evolution can comport with responsible views of traditional Orthodox Christian theology. Then in Kentucky, we, we have the Ark uh, Museum, which, which uh, uh, entertains thousands of visitors a, view, a year with, with the view of human origins that would be direct, directly con- uh, contrary to what uh, Francis Collins and the Biologos Foundation are working at. So uh, evangelicals would be people who would, would fit into both camps, but would fit in in, in very, very different ways. So uh, you can see that the, uh, that the kind of unity there might be on some specifically religious characteristics vanishes pretty quickly when we move out to social matters or questions like uh, how do we guard evolution or the, the, the current political scene. And so, you know, one of the sentences that really jumped out to me was the first time I cracked open your book, and right there on the very beginning, you start off by quite famously saying that the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there's not much of an evangelical mind. So with what you just shared and thinking about this 27 years later, to what extent today do you still find this true or not find true, or how has it changed? The way I would put it now, and I, I think I uh, sort of intimated that in the book, but the way I would put it now is that um, evangelical does not really give observers purchase on the life of the mind. Um, there certainly are evangelical believers who are uh, ex- extraordinary in their intellectual life, and there are evangelical believers who, at least by many standards, would, would be quite uh, unfavorable. Uh, to to an evangelical life. So I, I don't myself look for an evangelical mind to be a positive contributor to society or to the church. But I do think, and there's many examples of this, I do think that um, evangelical Christians have made, are making, and will continue to make really good contributions as Christian thinkers, oftentimes in uh, cooperation with Christian believers from other traditions that it would not be considered uh, evangelical. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that, that evangelicals will contribute to distinctively Christian thinking, although I'm really not looking forward or can't see the prospect of, of, a, of a pro- intellectual approaches that uh, would have a single meaning as evangelical intellectual approaches. Can you say just a little bit more about that last part that you just said? Sure. Uh, again, if you say what what if you ask the question, what is the status of the evangelical mind? And I'd have to say, well, there is no evangelical mind. There are evangelicals who are powerful thinkers in law, in philosophy. I, I, I hope there's some evangelicals who are well known for historical work. 
And there are evangelical thinkers who are promoters of uh, wild conspiracy theories. There are evangelical uh, activists who, who uh, have taken the lead, for example, in some of the anti, anti-vaccination activities of the recent past. So when the, when the word evangelical is used in search of a common intellectual stance, it's very difficult to find one. There are characteristics of evangelical Christianity that can be identified in people, but often people who are on opposite sides of political or intellectual questions. You know, Mark, as you shared that, it made me reflect some on you know, my own experiences within evangelical Christianity. And I remember growing up, like in Sunday school, hearing that if you, I went to college, that I'd be much less likely to maintain my faith. And then I remember coming home from college uh, one year, my pastor being worried, and then a few years later coming back and telling him I was studying, getting my doctorate in psychology. And he actually pulled me aside and said, I'm going to pray for your soul. So, so I've right. been in the context where, you know, sometimes uh, education or that life of the mind might actually be seen as a threat to our faith. But one of the things that struck me when I reread your book this past Christmas was like, I actually found myself, Mark, actually tearing up because at the beginning, you talk about some of the challenges that we're facing and that if we don't take action, we're going to root uh, start to reap some fruits that aren't going to be very helpful to the church or society. And it made me to start to wonder about uh, kind of like what you were talking about, conspiracy theories of, are we seeing a subset maybe within white evangelicalism? And I'm not saying all white evangelicals, so you know that's not what I'm going with this. Of but course, sure. it, it does seem like there's maybe a radicalization of the evangelical mind happening. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yes, I think that would be true for some people who are legitimately uh, called evangelicals. What I think you, you could say historically is that there's always been a strong populist mindset, a strong uh, uh, tradition of following articulate, charismatic leaders. And also in, in the evangelical uh, traditions, there, there have been a, a, a real strong innovators in communication strategies. So it was originally preaching out of doors and then eventually newspapers and mass circulation magazines and the radio. And now in the age of of social media, we have evangelical people who are very adept at at, uh, disseminating their ideas, their thoughts through modern, up-to-date communication uh, technology. In that sense, it's just that's very traditionally evangelical. But as I think it's it's obvious, the the modern... uh, Social media, the modern communication means that are at hand, lend themselves to much that's good, but also much that's uh, not so good, much that's, uh, in fact, by many standards, just simply uh, crazy. So we, we have a situation where longstanding characteristics in the evangelical world, reliance upon charismatic, effective public speakers, has a new uh, arena in which to operate these days. And some of the effects are quite good. Some of the effects I think are quite bad and and contribute to what you described as the radicalization of some of those who might legitimately be called evangelicals. Continuing uh, on that line, Mark, that's really helpful. Um, I wanted to ask you about one particular topic. It's, It's near to me. I've done a lot of refugee work in the past. We're watching what's happening in Ukraine tragically unfold, um, and I just saw you know that we've seen studies like this over the last 
six or seven years, but a recent study in the last few weeks came out that said 64% of all Americans support a legal pathway to citizenship for undocumented immigrants, and only 47% of white evangelicals agree. Uh, and it's like white evangelicals are the least supportive of this kind of pathway to citizenship, um, you know, of any religious or non-religious block. In, in one ways, it seems like the answer is easy. What you just, what you just said, it's a uh, you know, populist leaning, a charismatic leader that could swing that. But but I think then it gets deeper for me, and it, I think, well, why on an issue that's been bipartisan in the past, that's been near to Christians' hearts for millennia, um, it's central to the story of God in the Bible, to Jesus. Why are American evangelicals so vulnerable on this issue of immigration and refugees, um, even even knowing that there's some, you know, this part of our movement that's populist? Sure, that, that's actually a really good question, uh, focusing on an issue in which, as it happens, um, some evangelical groups have actually been leaders mm-hmm. over, the, over the centuries in welcoming uh, new uh, comers to the, to the United States. You think of uh, uh, World Relief in our day has been, has been an evangelical agency mobilized to help many, uh, many different kinds of immigrants from many different places in the world. But uh, b- because of the uh, success of American evangelicals in using popular media to gain religious ends, that investment in popular media means that they are more likely to be swayed by popular voices in the uh, popular media than other groups that, that, frankly, were just not as successful in using uh, the popular media. So uh, I think this is an insight from my uh, friend and colleague, George Marsden, with whom I've worked uh, closely on many matters. George has said a, a strength of, of evangelical movements is their adaptability to popular culture, their ability to communicate to the man and the woman on the street. But that strength brings with it the reciprocal danger that being skilled in the use of popular communication leaves you open to being unusually influenced by others who are skilled in popular communication. So I think the populist character, which in many ways has been, I think, successful and fruitful for the kingdom of God, but the the strength of the populist character of evangelical movements helps us see why strong social, political, economic, populist movements will have, can have a determinative effect on members of evangelical communities. And w- within that effect that you're talking about of how both media and other sources of communication can impact the evangelical movement and its connection to culture. You know, one of the things that you also talk about in your book and really do a great job of explaining are some of those historical roots of these tensions that we see, particularly between evangelicalism and science. And just curious, you know, like right now, one of the things that we're seeing, for example, are you know lawmakers trying to pass certain laws mm-hmm. about can't teach this or banning books, these sorts of things that are happening, many coming from being identified as evangelical. So how, though, can we better walk alongside faith and science in a way that really reflects God's glory and love of neighbors rather than always seeing it as a point of conflict? 
Sure. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a pressing question now. It's, it's been perennial. Not always. Uh, certainly in the 18th century, uh, well into the 19th century, you had many people identified as evangelicals who were leaders in the scientific world of their day. I think I would say, again, that in um, our day, the, the, and I, I would pose it as the legitimate evangelical challenge, it would be to have our attitudes towards science, our attitudes toward the public square, our attitudes toward education, be closely governed, closely determined by the center of the Christian faith. So uh, just to expand on, on the way you were describing uh, Christian attitudes toward science, if we believe that God made the physical world, if we believe that God made it possible for humans to understand the physical world, if we believe that the, that the uh, understanding of the physical world takes place when there's careful observation of the physical world, we're, we're approaching science uh, on the basis primarily of what we believe about God, the creation, and the very powerful passages in the New Testament about the creation com coming through Jesus Christ. So in some ways, to be careful in studying the physical world is a way of honoring the second person of the Trinity in whom all things exist. Well, that's, that's a kind of ideal evangelical operation from the basis of evangelical Christian faith. But none of us are ideal in our lives in, in any sense. And uh, those, of, those people who are legitimately identified as evangelical are influenced by other things than the main traditions of Christian biblical faith. And in our day, there are so many of these uh, other, other uh, influences and other media uh, pressures that given again the way in which evangelicals have used successfully populist, charismatic leadership, innovative communication in our society means that evangelicals are open to influences from charismatic leaders who know how to use the hypermedia platform. And in my view, it's a, it's a judgment, but in my view, some of that uh, influence pulls evangelicals away from the, the biblical gospel-oriented foundations that should be the guiding principles in approaching the natural world. Thanks, Mark. That's a great explanation. Jamie mentioned kind of tearing up during part of the, of the book. One of the parts of your book, as I was rereading it, getting ready to talk with you, that I found both encouraging and discouraging at the same time was like you mentioned 200 years ago there were american evangelicals pointing to this really great way that science and faith could walk alongside each other and to think that 200 years ago that the, you know so that's the positive is there is that we have a tradition of that and then the the negative is of course seeing seeing how difficult that still is um for many people to happen right. I want to shift gears slightly and uh, you know we work in the humanitarian disaster institute we're working with uh, grad our graduate students as well as partner organizations that are uh, really a, a beautiful part of that activism uh, which you mentioned earlier um, part of evangelical responding to the hurting world and helping and so I'll put this in kind of a blunt way and I'm used so that you can nuance it but um, I think people think about this sometimes there's like this option to have a life of the mind or an option to be active but wanted to ask it in this way can activism get in the way of developing the life of the mind 
and relatedly, can a commitment to the life of the mind get in the way of serious commitment to loving our neighbors who are suffering? The, the simple answer is yes on both questions. It is certainly mm -hmm. possible to be devoted to uh, intellectual, intellectual life to such a degree that nothing else matters in the uh, give and take of the world around us. And it certainly is possible for people who are uh, really strongly dedicated to making a difference in the world, uh, that there's no time for uh, patient thought, there's no time for critical reflection. It doesn't, however, have to be that way. And I think, mm -hmm. uh, uh, particularly when we talk about groups and movements, not, not, not necessarily individuals, because in, individuals should have individual callings that they will want to uh, expend the, the most amount of energy on. But church bodies, uh, colleges, uh, other sorts of organizations, ideally, in, in Christian terms, ideally, will be eager to love God with the mind and also to love God in service to other people. So uh, uh, the first and second great commandments, right? Love God with all your strength, soul, heart, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And I, th I think it's significant that, that uh, in the times that we see Jesus presenting the, 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 the great commandments, that they're linked. So uh, in, in the foundation of Christian faith, I think we'd have to say the ideal are thinking activists or active thinkers. Uh, but none of us are able to live up to ideals all the time, and most of us are not able to live up to ideals a lot of the time. And th this means that, that uh, the ideal Christian position is, is often hard to come by, particularly, I would say, when there are such strong pressures uh, in, in the activist direction to worry about uh, intellectual problems and particularly, I think, frankly, those of us who are, are more inclined to the intellectual life have to be aware of, of the many difficulties, the many hurdles, the many non-Christian aspects that are characteristic of contemporary uh, Western American in, in ac academic or intellectual life. So the ideal is quite clear, I think. You want to love God with your mind and you want to love your neighbor as, as yourself. And those, those who are uh, focused on uh, on loving the neighbor as itself, probably need to be pulled back to thinking about loving God with the mind, and the opposite is also true. I, I really appreciate that, Mark, of how you were able to show that this idea of the life of the mind and loving our neighbors can really complement one another, and it's not something that has to always be competing. And as professors in a Christian college, you know, Kent and I work with a lot of graduate students who are going to go into humanitarian and disaster leadership related fields. Just curious what advice that you would have for them or how, what kind of guidance you might give to them about how do they keep growing at this place of their careers or education so that this really does occur in a complementary way as they go forward. Certainly. It seems to me, again, the ideal is fairly easy to state, but difficult to live out. The ideal would be for those who are going into uh, any kind of Good Samaritan work, uh, disaster relief, uh, refugee relief. You want to be thoroughly uh, equipped with the details of your specialty. So that would mean whatever the area of concern is, a real diligence in finding out uh, the way things really are. But then as a Christian doing those things, uh, the ideal, again, would be always to have an, uh, uh, a desire to be understanding 
God's word more thoroughly, understanding, uh, at least in a preliminary way, important theological, um, biblical concepts that would, would guide you in applying your desire to be active in, in the world. So people are going to have specialties, and it's really impossible to ask somebody who's going to be a real active uh, uh, helper in one uh, needy human area to be uh, the equivalent of a scholar at the same time, but keeping the mind open to uh, biblical teaching, keeping the mind open to a reading that, that uh, focuses a, a, a theological searchlight on the particular problems underway, that I think would be possible. So uh, again, in ideal terms, someone who's very active in a, a relief organization, who always has time for uh, meditation, worship, personal Bible reading, a little bit of reading in, in um, theological areas that are that are uh, uh, pertain to the area of activism. That, it seems to me, would be an ideal situation. Thanks, Mark. That's that's great advice uh, for when people are, are students and, and beyond uh, being students as well. Uh, we wanted to ask you one more question, and we'll go into our, our final quick questions that sure. we like to ask all of our guests. So, as you look at what we've talked about there, there are these beautiful parts of what's happening and what's under the evangelical umbrella and, you know, more things that, you know, some of us and you might find discouraging. But when you, as this book comes out and you look at the big picture, um, what makes you most discouraged um, at the moment about the church in American society uh, and what makes you most hopeful? I think I would answer those questions with the same set of responses. And uh, the reason I'm still willing to be uh, considered an evangelical, despite a lot of objections to things that others who call evangelicals are up to, is that uh, the main characteristics of evangelical Christianity are uh, the message of personal salvation in Christ, uh, the, the message that the Bible provides us uh, when studied seriously and, and as, a, as a whole, provides us with uh, the right kind of guidance for living and preparing for eternity. Um, so what, what makes me encouraged about uh, evangelicals in the modern world is that the evangelical resources, while, while not perfect and, and, and certainly not to be, uh, you can't say that other Christian traditions have, have, have are, are or have nothing to offer or can't be of help, but the evangelical tradition has real resources that point people to God, point people to honorable lives as believers, point people to hope in Christ for eternity. So that's that. So long as that kind of evangelicalism survives, I'm, I'm filled with optimism. I'm discouraged, however, when those who are known as evangelicals seem to turn away from the riches of scriptural tradition embodied in, in evangelical proclamation and evangelical message and evangelical understandings of the, the need for a personal relationship with Christ. When, when individuals named evangelical seem to uh, gravitate toward uh, other guidance for their lives that really are not too closely connected to these main basic Christian teachings in an evangelical form. So uh, my encouragement is that the uh, evangelical messages continue on, continue strongly, can continue in many different forms. My discouragement is that 
that understanding, those, those strong evangelical voices don't get heard as often and as widely as they should. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Now we want to turn towards, you know, before wrapping up, I wanted to ask you five questions we like to ask everyone and they'll, um, just to be able to give quick answers to these. And, uh, and we're, because, you know, as you just talked, I was thinking during this last answer, sorry, I'm looping back, but it's um, just grateful for you and the way you've modeled that sort of faithfulness in your life of faith and also just your rigor as a scholar. And I'm so grateful for, for you for not just talking about this and helping to give us insight, but also modeling that in your life. Um, so the first of these quick questions is, you know, could you share with us something that you're reading now that you're enjoying or finding helpful? I've just finished a book on King George III by a British historian who wants to restore the reputation of this monarch who in the Declaration of Independence seemed like such an ogre. It's a real good <laughs> historical book and especially encouraging for, for this uh, pod, podcast because George III was a really faithful Christian man. His, his uh, parentage and his kids were awful, but he, he was a, 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 a good, faithful Christian trying to do what he could. He is. And he also, although he's presented as an ogre, he does have a great character in the Hamilton really as well. He's very funny. <laughs> not, <laughs> not, uh, not too historically accurate, but <laughs> hilarious. Certainly hilarious. That's great. And Mark, what's a book you've given away more than others over the years? Uh, that's probably, uh, I've certainly given a lot of, a lot of historical books away. Uh, John Stott's Basic Christianity is a book that I've given often, and uh, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity is a book I've given. Both are straightforward, uh, Stott, a little more evangelical, uh, Lewis uh, somewhat more, as he says, mere Christian, but really fine introductions to the Christian faith. Uh, third question, is there something that you're using right now that's you're finding especially helpful in getting done what you have to? It could be an app. Is there a productivity trip? You're a prolific writer. What's your tricks for for uh, being a, a prolific writer? So something that's helping you to be productive these days. Uh, technology is not my thing. I know how to use a word processor. And so uh, today, as it probably the last 40 years, uh, simply getting to it pretty soon after breakfast and having a little bit of caffeine to boost me along the way and not stopping for two or three hours has probably been my, my the best key to, to whatever I've been able to do. Well, Mark, hearing you say that, could I also get you to go ahead and tell everyone in the academy that uh, we should all stop emailing, that that's really <laughs> the true way to being productive. So I just need somebody of your level of influence to say that. So not sure you want to go on record. So we'll go ahead and move on to the, the next question here. Um, what's um, maybe a recent musical artist or show or something you've been listening to or watching that's brought you joy? I'm a great uh, fan of the uh, cantatas of Johann Sebastian Bach. And there is, I should be able to tell you the number, 77, maybe. Uh, Gott der Herr ist Sohn und Schild. God the Lord is Son and Shield. It is such a wonderful piece of music. I listen to it, not every day, not every week, but many times a year. That's great. And then uh, final of these questions is, what do you do to renew your body and mind? Uh, my wife, Maggie, and I tend to go to bed pretty early. 
and I, re- I read uh, mysteries. Uh, I, I, uh, I like the, the P.D. James mysteries. I like the Ian Rankin mysteries. Uh, and there's several other authors, not, not quite so good, but uh, that's, that's uh, primary. I guess a way for someone who likes reading in other ways of life is to have light reading to balance the series. <laughs> That's great. Well, Mark, again, thank you for your leadership um, as a Christian in the country, uh, as a scholar, and thank you so much for spending this time with us today. Well, you're welcome, and all the best in all of your efforts, too, with the the Good Samaritan podcast and the, the program at Wheaton College. Thanks for joining us for this conversation. Hope you enjoyed that as much as Jamie and I did. Um, so appreciate how he models this life of the mind and life of faith. And so I wanted to close this time with a quote from Mark's book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, that I think is a really beautiful vision. So here is a quote and the way we'll finish. And I think it's worth staying around for. It's really, really um, encouraging. The search for a Christian perspective on life, on our families, our economies, our leisure activities, our sports, our attitudes to the body and to healthcare, our reactions to novels and paintings, as well as our churches and our specifically Christian activities, is not just an academic exercise. The effort to think like a Christian is rather an effort to take seriously the sovereignty of God over the world he created, the lordship of Christ over the world he died to redeem, and the power of the Holy Spirit over the world he sustains each and every moment. From this perspective, the search for a mind that truly thinks like a Christian takes on ultimate significance because the search for a Christian mind is not, in the end, a search for mind, but a search for God. Thanks for being with us as we keep searching for God, as we keep seeking to do good better. Learn more about the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, including our graduate degree and trauma certificate, at the link in our show notes. You can attend the program online or in person. And stay in touch. You can email us at producer at bettersamaritan.com. Thanks so much for bringing us along on your journey as we all endeavor to do good better. This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series, Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com CT.